this Christmas will be different. It isn't what we planned. It isn't what we hoped for ourselves or our families or for our world. But maybe in that way, we're closer to the events of the first Christmas than ever before. I mean, if you think about it, the circumstances of Jesus' birth were not what Mary and Joseph had planned. The unexpected pregnancy, no doubt leading to social and family drama. The political crisis requiring a multi-day overland trek at the very end of her pregnancy giving birth, her first baby, in a place far from home with strangers that had no room for them, a feeding trough, their baby's first bed. It wasn't what Mary and Joseph had planned, and I'm sure it felt like everything was totally in chaos and completely out of control. But actually, every day, detail of that Christmas was planned and purposed generations before they ever lived it. And so is ours. And I'm sure that didn't make the hay any cleaner or the smell any sweeter. But what's worth celebrating at Christmas truly isn't the circumstances anyway. It's the reality that God himself is here with us, right in the middle of our circumstances, and that makes all the difference. So this Christmas, whether your circumstances feel worth celebrating or not, may you celebrate the truth that is bigger, that doesn't change regardless of your circumstances. God with you. You, Emmanuel, God, powerful, in control, your loving Father, your defender, your protector, your Savior. And he's working to do something bigger than make us all comfortable this Christmas. He's making us and all of our broken world new different. Good morning. My name is Jan. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have the privilege of being married to that lovely lady. Christmas is going to be different this year, isn't it? I bet you can make a list. In fact, if you're watching online, you can just like comment and make all the different, say all the things that are going to be different this year, like masks and are you traveling or not traveling and all of the things that, that, are, that are going to be different. And it's not just COVID though, is it? I mean, it's the economy and the, the, the jobs, uh, job losses some people are struggling with. It's the uh, racial tensions in our country. It's the, the divisive political climate that's out there that's still going on. There's all these things. There's, and then there's just the normal personal issues of struggling in relationships and, and medical diagnoses that we didn't plan on. And it's an ugly Christmas sweaters. Well, that may not be new for some of you, but it's new for me this year. <laughs> 
Christmas is going to be different, but what if, what if, as Lindsay suggested, different is exactly the way Christmas is supposed to be this year? What if God has something different for us this Christmas? And what if all of the, the circumstances are actually bright neon signs saying, pay attention, come close to me right now. What if our challenges and our difficulties are setting the stage for us to have our own personal supernatural encounter with the living God? Because isn't that what you see in the first Christmas? A group of, of ordinary people struggling with the brokenness of this world who are invited into a bigger story. A group of ordinary, no-name people who experience an extraordinary God in extremely difficult circumstances. You know, when, when around the time when Jesus was born, the Jewish people, they were a conquered people who were being ruled over by the Romans. The circumstances for them and their lives was every bit as hard, if not more so than what we're experiencing right now. They despised the Roman rule. They, the, the Romans appointed a king over them that they despised. There were, there were uh, riots and protests, historian tells us, in multiple cities against that king. There were actually two armed rebellions against the, the Roman Empire trying to overthrow their rule. So there was great civil unrest. There was disease and sickness. And guess what? They didn't have vaccines. They didn't have the medical advancements that we have today. A little bit before Jesus was born, there was a famine that struck the Judean area. And historians tell us that over 20,000 people passed away in that famine, which for the population of it at that time would have been a huge chunk of the population. And many of those people who lived through that famine were the people you see in the first Christmas story. And in the midst of those circumstances, in the midst of a hard time, these no-name people in the middle of unimportant villages and towns begin having encounters with a supernatural God, begin to have visitations from angels, begin seeing choirs, huge armies of angels. So celebrating Christmas in tough circumstances, that's kind of par for the course. That's kind of, what, kind of what Christmas is all about. We're starting a series today called A Different Kind of Christmas. And it's not only an acknowledgement of how different the circumstances are, it's an invitation, a call to celebrate Christmas. Not just as an American holiday, but as an act of worship. To let Christmas really be different, not just because of COVID, but because of the presence of God in our lives. What if in the midst of all of our challenges, all our tough circumstances, God is inviting us to celebrate Christmas as an act of worship? And if you're here today or you're watching online, if you're watching online, hey, we're so glad you're joining us. You might say to me, hey, Jan, you know what? I don't really believe in the whole Jesus thing. Like, I, I, I'm not sure I believe, I'm not sure what I believe about Jesus. And I'm really skeptical about the whole God thing. And so all this stuff about experiencing God in the midst of Christmas, I don't really get that. I, I understand that. I understand that because uh, for, the, for the first part of my life, I was an atheist. And so I understand where you're coming from. And, and here's, here's what I would invite you to do. What, what if you just use Christmas as a time to just, just to get to know Jesus a little bit better? 
That's all. Just, just, just to say, maybe this Christmas, I'm going to understand more of the story of Jesus than I do right now. This is an invitation for you. Today, we're going to be looking at how do we prepare ourselves to experience Jesus. Before we do, I want to pray. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, we come to you and we thank you that this morning we can trust that you are the God who invaded the earth. You are the God who came, who, who comes in the midst of every difficult circumstances. And you stand and you call out and you say, here I am. So would you open our hearts today, Lord, not just to your word, but to your presence and to the reality of who you are. Jesus, would you speak to us? Would you, would you remove any obstacle today and speak directly into our hearts and into our minds so that we can better see the reality of who you are? It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I want to look at how do we prepare ourselves to experience Jesus this Christmas. And maybe that sounds strange to you. Maybe you're like, hey, Jan, Jesus knows where I live. I mean, like if God's real, he knows where he lives. He can just show up in my house anytime and, and come appear to me and, and he can do that. And absolutely, he can do that. But more often when you look at scripture, what you see with God and the pattern you see is that God, when God's going to do something, when he's going to go show up, he actually sends a warning ahead of time. He sends a heads up ahead of time. It's usually often the messenger or, or a leader or someone to, to say, hey, God is coming. God is going to do this thing. You need to get ready. And people have an opportunity to respond to that however they want. And this is, this is exactly what happened with Jesus. That before Jesus started his ministry, before Jesus was out walking on water, before he was calling disciples, before he was teaching and feeding thousands of people with a couple little fish, before he did any of that, God sent someone else ahead of Jesus whose name was John, and maybe you've heard of him, John the Baptist. And, and in Luke 3, chapter 4, it calls John the voice of one calling the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. His job was to go to the people of Israel and just to begin warming up their hearts. <sighs> warming them up, getting them ready so that they would recognize, believe in, and trust Jesus when he came. A while back, I went to New York and I went to see a taping of the Dave Letterman show. Anybody remember the Dave Letterman show? <laughs> right? So I went back, I went back and was there with some friends and we go in and everything from the moment we stepped out, foot outside the studio to get in line to, to when Dave came on stage, everything was designed to warm us up so that we would respond to his jokes with laughter. Everything. The people were out there telling jokes. They were telling us, make sure you laugh at his jokes. Everything was designed to make us responsive to his jokes. And John came so that people would be prepared to respond to Jesus. So the Israelites would be responsive to him when he came. So I think since John's calling was to prepare the way for Jesus, I think it's appropriate we look at what he did as we prepare ourselves to experience Jesus this Christmas. 
So we're going to look at some verses in Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Luke chapter 1. And I want to give you a little bit of context for me, in verse, starting in verse 16. This story happens before Mary and Joseph find out Mary's pregnant, before they take that trip to Bethlehem, before all of that stuff. And what's going on is Mary has a cousin named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is married to this guy named Zechariah. And they're a little older in years, and they, they haven't had any kids, though they've prayed many times to have kids. They don't have any. They continue to pray for that. But Zechariah, he's a priest in the temple, and he gets chosen by lot to be the priest who gets to go into what's called the holy place and, and burn incense as an act of worship to God. Now, this was a big deal. A priest would only get to do this once in their entire life. So like he's saying, dear Lord, help me not trip and knock over the incense, right? This is, this is the one chance he gets. And he goes in, and as he's doing this, all of a sudden, Zechariah has an experience, a supernatural experience, where a messenger from God comes to him and begins telling him, you are going to have a son. Your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a son, and you need to name him John. And he tells him who John is and what John is going to do, and he tells him how John is going to prepare people's hearts to experience Jesus. So we're going to look at this. And as we look at this, we're going we're gonna to see what we can learn from this as we prepare ourselves to experience Jesus. I'm going to give us one question for each of the three things that John is going to do. So we're, by the end of today, you'll have three questions, a what, a who, and a how. And if you want to write those down, you can go ahead and write that and write a what, a who, and a how. And if you're online, you can sort of just write that down, and those will be in the comment section as well for you to follow along with. So jump in here, verse 16, Luke chapter 1. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient of the wisdom of the right to the disobedient and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So they see three things that John was going to do to prepare people to experience Jesus. We're going to look at each of them and look at one question for each of them. A what, a who, and a how. So when you look at that verse in verse 16, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. That word bring back is a Greek word, epistrophe, it means to return. To, to turn back towards something and embrace it. So it's saying this is what John's going to do. That basically the people of Israel, they've turned away from God. And what John is going to do is he's going to turn them back and prepare their hearts to come back and embrace God. It's this idea that you're traveling in one direction. And you're going in that one direction and then somehow you start to just go another direction. And sometimes we do that deliberately. Sometimes we take a deliberate and intentional turn and we say, yeah, we were going on this path. We were following the Lord. And, and, that, and then we deliberately said, you know what? I don't want to do that anymore. There's this one area of my life. I don't want to follow what God has to say. I want to do this my own way. I'm deliberately turning and going that way. But I don't think that's what happens most of the time. There, that does happen some of the time. But also what happens a lot of times is we just drift. We just sort of drift. It's like you're driving in your car and then someone, something catches your eye out your window so you look out that way and then what happens? Oh dear. Right? Or you're driving along and your phone rings or you get a text message and you pick it up and, and you don't mean to drift into that other lane of traffic but you do. 
And you know, the thing to remember is that unintentional drift is every bit as dangerous or even more dangerous than the deliberate turn. I know this because when I was a senior in high school, I was riding my bike home from soccer practice. I lived in Seattle, and if you've ever been to Seattle, there's big hills in Seattle, and it was nighttime, and, and I had my bag on my back, and I'm riding my bike, and I, I get to this intersection, coming down a hill, and I get an intersection, and the light turns yellow. And if you ride bikes very often, you know a yellow light's really difficult because if you're going fast, it's hard to stop really quickly on a bike like you can in a car. And so I see this yellow light, and there's no way I know, I know there's no way I can stop in time to, 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 to not get hit by cross traffic. I've got to instead go as fast as I can to get through the light. And so I put my head down and I stand up and I pedal as fast as I can and I get through the intersection and I look up and I had drifted about four to five feet to the right and 10 feet in front of me was a parked car. And there's nothing I can do, nothing. And I hit that thing going as fast as I can humanly possible go. I flip up over the car, all the way over the car and land on my back with my head facing the bumper of the car. And I think, my parents are never gonna let me drive now. (laughs) Sometimes just drifting unintentionally is more dangerous than we know. And that can happen spiritually. We're going along and we just, our eyes just go off of Jesus. We just get distracted by hard circumstances or something and we end up flat on our back staring up saying, what in the world happened? Now, in the midst of COVID, it's easier than ever to drift from the Lord, to shift our attention. Let me ask you, is your relationship with Jesus better or worse since COVID started? Is your prayer life more and more active? Do you have more or less passion to dive into God's word? Are you more or less likely to talk about your faith with someone who doesn't know Jesus? Do you feel closer to God or further? Are you more generous now or less? Are you more concerned about the poor and the hurting of our community or less concerned? Have you drifted? Not intentionally. You haven't decided, I don't want to care about those people, but just just drifted maybe. And look, this is not about guilt. This is not about, oh, you're right. I don't love Jesus enough. This is about hope. Because here's the beautiful thing. that, that, that The picture here is that when we go off the rails, God doesn't say, too bad, sucker. He doesn't stand over me as I'm laying in front of the car going, ha, ha, ha. No, the picture that God says is, I'm sending someone after you. I'm sending this guy, John, to go get and turn you back and bring you back to me. There's hope in that. It's not guilt, it's hope. This Christmas, now is the time we need to get our heads up. Get our heads up. And look at what's most important and where we're headed. If we want to experience Christmas as God intends this season, we need to turn our hearts back towards him to remember Jesus born in a manger, the beauty and wonder and awesomeness of God incarnate, almighty God becoming a child because he loves us and wants us to know his love, to be free from all of our selfishness and have eternity with him. So here's here's the question for you. Question from this. What do you need to turn away from so you can focus more clearly on God this Christmas. 
Because in order to turn to something, you have to turn away from something else. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It wasn't bad for me to look down at my pedals to pedal hard. It just had a consequence. So it may not be, it may not be something bad, but there's just something this year that you need to just say, you know, I'm just going to set that aside for now so I can really focus so that when things go crazy at Christmas here, when things go bonkers, I am rooted and right where I need to be and able to respond out of the grace and love of Jesus. So then you go on to the next part of the verse. He will go on before the Lord in verse 17 in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children. Good news, by the way, it says that their hearts may be turned. It's just great to know. Someone just needs to know today, your heart can be turned. Whatever condition your heart is in right now, it does not have to stay that way. Whatever it is, it does not have to stay that way. God and you together can turn your heart. There's tremendous hope in that. Of course, this verse is talking about a specific kind of turning, turning of the heart. Cardia is the Greek word. It's where we get cardiology, and it's the seat of desires, the feelings, the affections, the passions. And so it's saying, John, he's going to turn the affections, the desires, the passions of the Israelites towards their kids. The phrase I like to use, he's saying they're going to invest their hearts in their kids. Now that word for parents, so it's a bit of an odd translation. There's a Greek word for parents, gonias. That's not the word that's used here. This is actually the Greek word pater, which is father. And I, I understand why the, the translators of the NIV, which is the one we're using, used parents because they want to be inclusive. And, 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 and I love that. And I'm, I, I appreciate the inclusivity because, of course, God wants moms to invest their hearts in their kids too, right? Of course, God wants mothers to have their hearts turned toward their kids as well. Absolutely. But just because this verse is specifically addressing fathers in the original language doesn't mean it doesn't have application to mothers or to other people. It absolutely does. And we'll see that in a minute. But I think when we translate it this way, when we translate it as parents, then we miss something really important. See, throughout the history of Israel, which is recorded in the Old Testament, you see over and over again these prominent men who struggle to embrace their role as a dad. All the way back throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, you see these men, men like Eli, who was a priest, men like King David, who's in the pantheon of great leaders. You see these men who struggle to invest their hearts in their kids as they're supposed to. And so God, in this instance, he's not just giving a general encouragement to parents. He's actually diagnosing a problem in Jewish society at the time. He's actually saying, hey, men of Israel, at this time, you're not investing your hearts and your kids the way that you're supposed to. And God's recognizing that. And who's suffering because of that? The kids. So God is saying, hey, and, and isn't it beautiful that to prepare people for Jesus John is saying, dads, turn your hearts to the kids. That something happens spiritually that we see God more clearly as dads when we turn our hearts towards our kids. Now, I know we have great dads at MPC. We have phenomenal dads here at Mountain Park who I know love their kids and invest in their kids and take their calling as dads very seriously. But, but even the best dads even the best dads have times where we drift. I mean, if we're really honest dads, if we're really honest, isn't it possible sometimes for our hearts 
to drift from our kids, not to ignore our kids or to abandon our kids, but, but maybe to just move to where we're just around our kids a lot, next to our kids. To, and we end up maybe prioritizing our jobs or our careers or other things over our affection for our kids. And we lapse maybe sometimes into an authoritarian rule where it's really comfortable and we're great at disciplining our children. We're great at correcting our children. We're great at challenging our children. But when it comes to giving them our affections, to letting them know you matter to me and you matter to God, maybe sometimes that's a struggle for us. The good news is that God can turn your heart. I was convicted of this actually a, a few months ago. Um, God just confronted me and said, Jan, you care more about failing at your job than you do about failing as a parent. And it was true that when I thought about this failing this assignment at work or, or coming late to work or, or not doing this or not doing this extra piece for work, when I thought about those things, there's this piece in me that said, not today. I will not fail. I will do whatever it takes. But I didn't have that same response at the thought of maybe not being there for my kids the way that I was supposed to. Now, just because this verse is addressing dads doesn't mean, again, that there aren't other applications beyond fathers, fathers and children. The verse is recognizing that fathers have a particular and specific obligation to love and prioritize their kids. But isn't it true that we all have people like that? Isn't it true that we all have people we're called to love and to prioritize? Maybe it's our parents. Maybe it's our spouse. Maybe it's the poor and the hurting. Maybe it's people who are different from us. Aren't we all called to love those people? What about the people who don't know Jesus? People who haven't given them, we're called to love them. We have a call and an obligation to love certain people. And so that's my question for you. Who does God want to turn your heart toward this Christmas? What relationship have you neglected? What person or group of people have you grown a little cold toward? Have you maybe not prioritized as much as you could have? And if you are a dad, then I just encourage you again, how do you invest your heart in your kids this Christmas? Not just your money, but your heart. How do you share your hopes and dreams for your kids with them? And if you don't know what your hopes and dreams for your kids are, then how do you figure those out? Then we go on in verse 17 and it says, turns the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, some people, you can look at this and you might say, okay, this is basically saying, stop, do bad things and start doing good things, right? Turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Okay, stop being bad, start being good. And maybe that's what you need to hear today. Maybe that is what you need to hear. Maybe you're here and you know you have something that's been bothering you, you have an issue you struggled with and you just need someone to slap you upside the head and say, stop it. So we're going to have volunteers out in the lobby. They're just going to have their hands like this. And you just say, hit me, and they'll just whack it. No. Uh, and if you're online, just ask your spouse to do it for you. Um, but it's easy to view this verse. But there's really so much more going on in this verse. See, the word for, for disobedient is actually the word apathes. And it, and it actually means unbelieving. It actually is, is the unbelief that then by extension pours out into our actions. In other words, it's the picture of someone who acts in accordance with their unbelief. 
That's what it is. That's what, when it's written to disobedience, it's just people who act in accordance with their unbelief. And I love it because it gets to the root of the matter because isn't that what all disobedience is? Not just like spiritually, but like naturally. If you have a, have you ever had a boss or a teacher or a coach ask you to do something that you thought was completely useless? Raise your hand if your boss is, <laughs> yeah, we've all had those. Like, why in the world are you asking me to do this? And I'm guessing that when they asked you this, it wasn't like, yes, sir, I'm right on it. Like, ugh. Right? Because when we don't believe, we don't trust, we don't know, and we're slow to obey, or sometimes we don't obey at all. It happens spiritually. When we don't believe that God has the authority to speak into our lives, we don't trust that he's good enough to guide us in a way that is best for us, we struggle to obey, to walk out what he has for us. See, whatever unbelief we have in our hearts comes out in our lives. If we don't believe that God is powerful enough to do miracles, then maybe we'll never experience supernatural happenings in our lives. If we don't believe that he really listens to and responds to prayer, then maybe we develop a habit of prayerlessness and we never experience the peace that comes from unburdening ourselves in his presence. If we don't believe he still speaks to us through his word, then we may stop reading his word and we miss out on the encouragement and the hope and the guidance and the strength that comes when God speaks to our hearts. If we don't believe that Jesus came to earth because he loves us unconditionally and that through his death on the cross, we are forgiven of every wrong we've ever done or thought of, then we will struggle, struggle to love others and forgive them in the same way. If we don't believe that we have inherent worth, that we are made in the image of God, that he has a purpose and a plan for our lives and good works prepared for us to do, then we might try to find our worth and our purpose in other things, in the accumulation of wealth and popularity and people-pleasing. And we may end up compromising our faith and drifting in order to make other people happy. If, you don't, if we don't believe that the birth of Jesus was a divine happening, then maybe this Christmas will just be one more thing that wasn't what it was supposed to be because of COVID. So then you have this picture of disobedience, someone who acts in accordance with their unbelief, and then it goes to the wisdom of the righteous. And it's important to know it doesn't say the obedience of the righteous or the rules of the righteous. It's wisdom, and it's this word phronesis. It's not referring to a specific set of proverbs. It's wiseness in general. It's the overarching approach or attitude towards life that allows us to make good judgments. So what is the overarching attitude of the righteous that allows them to make good judgments? Well, there's this phrase in the New Testament that comes up a lot. It's in Romans 1.17 and Hebrews 10.38 and Galatians 3.11. It says, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the attitude of the righteous. I will live by faith. Not I will live by my ability to, do, to live a perfect life. Not I will live by a set of rules, but I will live by faith, trusting in the presence of God, trusting in who God is, allowing him into and over my life. See, this was one of the biggest misconceptions I had about Christianity when I was an atheist was that to me when I looked at Christians my my perception was that Christians were a group of people who lived by a set of rules and their set of rules was different from everybody else's rules and much less fun and 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 they looked at people who listened to other rules who obeyed other rules and they looked down upon those people 
And, and look, if you don't believe in God, that makes perfect sense, right? I mean, that's a reasonable conclusion. If you look at Christians and you don't believe that there's a God, then, then that's what it looks like, that just people following different rules. What began to turn me around was when I stopped asking, do I agree with the rules of Christianity? And started asking, what if God is real? What if there actually is this supernatural being who created me and created this world and, 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 and wants to be involved in my life? What if, what if that's real? And of course, over time, I began to realize, oh, oh, that God, he really is real. And he wants to engage me and he wants to transform my heart. He wants to be an everyday part of my life. And there's a big difference between walking with a set of rules you keep in your pocket and walking with the presence of God leading you and guiding you and empowering you in your life. So John, when he says he wants to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, saying the unbelieving, those who don't believe, to the wisdom of saying, I will live by faith. So here's the question, how is God calling you to believe him this Christmas? Yes, I'm sure there are behaviors God wants you to change. Yes, there are behaviors he wants me to change. But the first thing he wants is for us to trust in him. There may be something about him that you are struggling to believe, that you're truly forgiven, that he is here right now, that he is also in charge and able to work beauty and life and joy in the midst of everything we're experiencing. See, I think God's priority this year, this Christmas, is to turn our hearts towards him. And I think there's three, again, three basic questions we can ask this season as we look towards that. To saying, God, how do we prepare ourselves in this season of Advent to worship you at Christmas? Or we can ask, what do, you, what do I need to turn away from God so that I can focus more clearly on you this Christmas? You can actually use these as prayers. God, what do you, who do you want to turn my heart toward this Christmas? And God, how are you calling me to believe you this Christmas? Make that your prayer over the next few days. I want to pray to close this out, and we'll have some people down here who'd be happy to pray with you if you'd like to pray with them. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are here and that, 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 that your birth is a reminder that earth is not too far for you that earth is not too dirty for you, that humanity is not too broken for you, that I am not too ugly for you, that you came to us so that we might know how loved you are, how loved we are. So Lord, turn our hearts and our minds towards you. Help us put our attention on you, Jesus, to love you, to worship you, and this, this, this week, would you turn our hearts towards people we need to love? Would you help us turn away from the things we need to turn away from? And would you help us believe who you are? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you all for coming. We'll see you all next week.